Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 27 through verse 33. Mark 8, beginning in verse 27 through verse 33, once again, God's holy and inspired word. Mark 8, verse 27, God's word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priest and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So does almost count? We say that almost works only in horseshoes and hand grenades. But how about anywhere else? 2 plus 2 equals 3.9. Almost gets marked wrong. Would you drive over a bridge that bridge that almost held up? Aspirin that almost takes your migraine away is useless. A joke that is almost funny doesn't get a laugh. A knife that almost cuts your tomato doesn't make the cut. Indeed, in more places than not, almost doesn't really work, does it? And yet we have the tendency to use this ineffective almost and let it run free in theology, both in faith and life. The popular notion today is that precise belief divides... And so almost theology is better for tolerance and unity. Do you baptize babies or not? Close enough, you're welcome. You're saved by grace as long as you mix in some good works. This almost gospel is fine, right? Well, Peter is quick and on the ready with an almost definition of Christ. And so let's see how our Savior reacts. Well, as is typical, Jesus is on the move again. After healing the blind man in Bethesda, he turns due north and sets out for the Hellenistic city of Caesarea Philippi. Now, why he sets his GPS on Caesarea is not clear. Though this city is quite close to the Old Testament's town of Dan, which was the northern border of the Promised Land. Either way, our Lord takes this opportunity to converse with his disciples, a nice little walk and talk. Though Jesus is curious about his public rating, he inquires of his disciples what the public thinks of him. Who do people say that I am? It's as if the disciples have compiled a survey and he wants to know the results. And the disciples are plenty eager to share as each one now pipes up with an answer. Some say John the Baptist, others suppose Elijah, and another guest is one of the prophets, 
Maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah come back from the dead. Now, we've heard these opinions before back in chapter 6 when Herod was pondering who Jesus was. Yet it is good for us to consider what these trending ideas have in common. For one, they all fall into the office of prophet. They're heralds and messengers of God's word. Second, they've all come back from the dead. The prophets and John clearly died while Elijah was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. For Jesus to be one of these gives him a heavenly origin and a miraculous character. Three, all of these figures mark the coming of the Lord in glory and the dawn of the age to come. Elijah prepared the way for the day of the Lord. John announced the mighty one coming after him. And the return of the Old Testament prophets was a portent of the age to come. On the positive side, the public sees Jesus as a figure at the turn of the ages. They recognize God's authoritative word in him and that he has overcome death in some way. And there are some truths in these guesses. But it's interesting that these rumors posit nothing priestly or kingly in Jesus. They don't link Jesus to any priestly functions. But more so, they identify no kingly attributes in him. Now, of course, kings are by nature political creatures. They oversee laws, realms, economics, and military matters. And the crowd spot none of such, none of these things in our Lord. Sure, he can be a prophet, but he is nowhere near a king. And this insight that Jesus is not a king is both inaccurate and accurate at the same time, as we shall see. Nevertheless, in one, in one sense, this question is a bit more irrelevant. Surely Jesus knows the popular rumors about him, and he didn't need the disciples to tell him. Thus, the first question is more set up uh, for quiz number two, but who do you say that I am? We can all put up with inaccurate public rumors that are ignorant. But what really matters is what your close friends and family members think. Thus, the disciples are the Lord's nearest and dearest. Surely they know who the real Jesus is. And sure enough, with vig and vim, vim, vigor and vim, uh, Peter is confident that he is correct. You are the Christ. Jesus, you are the Messiah of God. And on first impression, this reads as far superior. The crowd babble about him being John the Baptist, but then Peter stands up like the A student and says the Messiah. What clarity after confusion. What insight amid such ignorance. Three cheers for Peter. And Peter is correct. This is an improvement. So as you know, it's not just about the words you use, but also what you mean by them. You can say fancy words, but if you don't know what they mean, then it doesn't mean you're smart. Thus, the Christ, or the Messiah as it is in Hebrew, is like an empty cup that needs to be filled up with meaning, connotations, and ideas. So who gets to define the Christ? Peter or Jesus. 
Well, we're not told exactly what Peter is thinking, but we do know the common notions of the day. First, the Christ, or the Messiah, means the anointed one, and it referred to the heir of the Davidic throne. Christ was a political, religious office. The majority position of the Pharisees saw the Christ as the Davidic king who would reinstate the ideal realm of Solomon. Christ would usher into the present the past glory of David and Solomon. At Qumran, they thought there were two Christs, one priestly and one kingly. The priestly Christ would purify the temple, while the royal Christ would establish the theocratic realm of Israel. Additionally, across the board, the Christ was defined as being for the ethnic Hebrews. He may or may not benefit the the Gentiles indirectly, this was debated, but the But the Christ was especially or only for the Jews, and only the righteous Jews at that. The disobedient or apostate Jews Christ would destroy, but the pure and obedient Hebrews would be rewarded by the Christ with untold paradise blessings. On top of this, the Messiah was considered holy and sacrosanct to the Lord. This means no harm could come to him and that success would cover everything he touched. Therefore, many different and confused ideas floated around about the Christ. But one thing they all had in common was that the Christ was theocratic. His office was to reinstate the ethnic, religious, and political realm of Solomon. This was the water that Peter swam in. It was the air he breathed from birth. Thus, Jesus quickly commands all his disciples to silence. Yes, Peter is correct. Jesus is the Christ. But under the strictest orders, the disciples can tell no one. Our Lord does to the disciples what he did to the demons. They would rightly confess that Jesus was the Son of God, but Jesus banned them from speaking because it would lead to misunderstanding. And he does the same with the disciples. This means Jesus is reserving for himself the prerogative to define the Christ. And it reveals that the popular ideas of the Christ, which rested in the disciples' mind too, shot wide of the mark. Jesus did not want to stoke this theocratic definition of the Christ at all. Thus, know what he does next. Jesus hushes the disciples from spreading that he is the Christ, and then he begins pouring into the Christ his own definition into the office of Messiah. He and he alone will spell out his identity as the Christ. And our Lord's explanation of his Messiahship is both remarkable and shockingly offensive. To begin with, he identifies the Christ with the Son of Man. Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, good, let me tell you about the Son of Man. As the Christ, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is its own pregnant title. Now, so far in Mark's gospel, Jesus has announced that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins and that the Son of Man is 
the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, then, is a title of glory, revealing the majesty and authority of God. And this fits with the prime passage of the Old Testament about the Son of Man in Daniel 7. There, the Son of Man came on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days to receive dominion, glory, and the everlasting kingship over a people of every nation and language. This unparalleled splendor is overflowing the cup of Christ and the Son of Man. And this sounds about right. Maybe those popular ideas of the Christ were not so far off. But just as we're thinking that we're getting served an ice cream sundae, Jesus pours vinegar all over it. The Son of Man must suffer. It is a divine necessity for the Christ to feel the agonizing pains of many things. But this can't be right. Suffering implies curse. It is indicative of God's displeasure, his punishment, or defilement. The glory of Christ, though, should only be matched with blessing, purity, and success. The holiness of the Son of Man can't be marred with the impurity of suffering or the dust of punishment. For the Christ to suffer means God failed to protect him, which is just impossible. A suffering Christ is wrong. Next, the priests, scribes, and elders will reject the Son of Man. No way! These three offices represented the highest covenant authority in Jerusalem. It is these who were supposed to hand the kingdom over to the Christ. If the priests reject Christ, then he has no kingdom. On top of this, the elders, scribes, and priests are the epitome of the righteous Hebrew. Christ comes to reward the righteous and to destroy sinners. cannot be that the righteous would be against the Christ. Moreover, if the priests reject the Christ, this means they are the ones who make the Son of Man suffer, which is unthinkable. If the Gentiles persecuted the Christ, this may be no surprise, but the scribes are experts on how to treat the holy. They wouldn't misjudge the Christ. This pill is getting too hard to swallow, and our Lord only makes it bigger. The Son of Man must be killed. No, you can't even say such a thing. The Old Testament says several times that God is a refuge for his Christ. He saves his Christ, and the Lord will never forget, forsake the Christ. God would never let his Christ perish, and so to even imply so is a lie. Besides, death is the paycheck for sinners. It happens to the unrighteous and disobedient, which is not the Holy Christ. Moreover, to die by being rejected by the authorities, this is for criminals, outlaws, the scum of the earth. For the priest to execute the Christ as an outlaw is blasphemy. It sounds like a bad joke that crosses the line of propriety. It's not funny. Finally, though, Jesus mentions that he must be raised after three days. The Christ will be executed and then resurrected. Now, this kind of makes it better, except for the fact that you can't find this easily in the Old Testament. 
A necessity means that God will ratify a promise of Scripture. But where do you unearth this in the Old Testament? Sure, the Old Testament talks about the general resurrection for God's people, but an individual resurrection for the Christ? No. Or at least this is what the popular idea is thought. And this is Jesus' definition of him being the Christ. Simply put, Jesus stomps his muddy boots all over the white carpet of popular ideas. He comes in the Hebrews' house and disrespects the most, their most precious definition of the Christ. Jesus is being both offensive and impious by the normative standards. And if this seems to be an exaggeration, look at what Peter does. Peter's reaction says it all. He pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Peter corrects God come in the flesh. Indeed, rebuking is not fixing some oversight. It isn't editing a typo. Oh, you forgot to dot dot the I. No, rebuking is scolding sin. It is reproving transgression, berating impiety, castigating wrongdoing and immorality. For his definition of the Christ, Peter reprimands Jesus as committing a sacrilege, as profaning the righteous. So offensive is the Lord's definition to the theocratic concept of the Messiah, Peter treats Jesus as an immature sinner. But it's worse. Peter pulls Jesus off to the side to correct him, which posits posits him as the teacher. Yes, Peter steps up as the Lord to fix the wayward student Jesus. He will be the dad to chasten the silly boy Jesus. As the authority, Peter refuses to let Jesus define his own messiahship. Jesus, you must be the Christ I tell you to be. You cannot define yourself in such a way. Clearly, Peter thinks that he is being the righteous one at the moment. Our Lord, though, will not tolerate Peter's theology. He pulls the almost card. Your almost, Peter, does not count. And so he retorts with his own rebuke. Jesus makes clear who is the Lord and who is the student in this relationship. And therefore, Jesus rebukes Peter for sin. His almost definition is not an innocent mistake, but a transgression against God. Next, he says, get behind me. This is an order to get back in line and submit as a disciple. Peter arrogated himself as a teacher, so Jesus scolds him to step back as a disciple, the student he is. Then the sharpness of Jesus' reproach reaches the point. Peter, you get behind me, Satan. Jesus undresses Peter and his definition is satanic. Now this doesn't mean Peter is possessed by Satan per se. Rather, Jesus teases out what he means. He says, you are not thinking of the things of God, but the things of man. Yet this idiom 
to set your mind on things or to think of the things of isn't so much about philosophical agreement, but it actually means political and or military alliance with. Peter is satanic because he's joined the team of man to oppose God's will, which is of the evil one. Jesus' point is not just that Peter is thinking incorrectly, but that he's actively opposing Jesus. Peter's theocratic definition of the Christ for glory is not just wrong, but it's at a war with Jesus, mission to be the suffering Messiah. Peter is standing in Jesus' way, and he's tempting him away from God to accept the popular ideas of the Christ. Our Lord's point is that he alone defines his messiahship. Jesus' definition is the only truth, and any other almost definition is of the devil. Thus, Jesus is calling us to submit our faith to him in humility. Our faith must cling to the Lord's truth and no other. And how fitting this is for us today. For currently, there is no shortage of lip service paid to Jesus. Inside and outside the church, many claim Jesus as their own, and they promote their own vision of Jesus. The modern definitions of Christ are manifold, and these modern conceptions are surprisingly similar to the ancient ones of Peter's day. As the Christ is invariably tied to glory. That is, Christ is defined as a political, economic, ethnic, or royal savior. Jesus is for the good of the people, not criminals. Christ helps the poor, makes society more just, enriches life, increases blessings, and overthrows the cruel and oppressive. In short, Jesus is the Christ who saves by winning, by making people winners according to the ways of men. And yet, how does Jesus define his messiahship? He suffers. His life was full of pain, disappointment, and hardship. He is rejected by the honorable authorities, by the expert righteous ones, and he's killed. Jesus explains his messiahship by losing. A hard life ended with execution Isn't this the epitome of losing, of weakness and of folly? Moreover, Jesus labels a winning definition of the Christ as satanic, while his losing definition is the necessity of God and almost does not count. But why did Jesus fulfill his office of Christ by losing? Because it was the only way to save sinners, losers like us. As it says, Jesus came not for the righteous, for winners, but he came for sinners, for losers. It was only by him losing on the cross that Jesus could save us from sin and win the resurrection for us. Jesus conquered on the cross to show us that the true problem is sin and the depravity deep within us. 
Thus he calls us here to have faith in him as the Christ who was crucified. He summons our faith in him as the suffering Messiah. And any other concept of the Messiah is satanic. It does not save. Moreover, our faith in Jesus as the suffering Savior must be bold and firm. It is cool today to be tolerant, to allow any almost definition of Christ. If it sounds good, it's okay. But Christ permitted no other definition than his, and so it should be with us. We lift high the one truth of Jesus, that he is God's Messiah, suffered, rejected, died, and risen again. This is the Jesus Christ of our conviction, our trust, our fidelity, and our love. Indeed, our confidence does not come from ourselves, but from the truth of Christ, as he himself defined it and revealed it to us. Thus, may our faith never waver on this question, who do you say that I am? Rather, beloved, may you rejoice in Jesus, as he's revealed in scripture, who is not an almost savior. For Jesus is your real and actual Savior because he died for you. The word of the cross is the power of God to save you to the uttermost through this life and unto the shores of the resurrection. Yes, we boast in the weakness of the cross of Christ because it is God's victory for us and it is our power made perfect in our weakness so that we might glorify him. Thus praise the Lord for Jesus, who is the Christ of God, who came, died, and rose again for our salvation, and all according to the scriptures. Amen.